That was a reading that included God's steadfast love towards us, and couldn't think of a more appropriate reading for something like the parable of two sons, as the father's love just comes out here in this parable. I'm not going to reread the entire story, but let me just kind of vaguely familiarize you with it once again. In the parable of the two stories, it begins in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15 where Jesus is telling a parable to a group of Pharisees that are standing there, who, by the way, feel that some people have sinned away their day of grace. And if you feel that you've sinned away your day of grace, this is a great story for you. Verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, let me ask you a question. When does the son get the inheritance? Normally, before or after the father dies. Therefore, this is the son saying, Father, I wish you were dead. This is all about shame and honor. The son here is shaming the father. He's not saying something along the lines of, can you give me more responsibility around here so that I can be more productive for the family and for the good of the community? What he's doing on the contrary is saying, Father, I wish you were dead right now. Give me the estate. It's actually a different word for inheritance, Greek word. It means the estate. It means the property. And everybody's standing around listening to this right now. They're all thinking the same thing. You and I get sentimental about the parable of the prodigal son or the two sons. Nobody in the first century is sentimental about a story like this. Everybody is thinking the same thing. As soon as the son says to the father, give me my inheritance right now, they're thinking to themselves, would somebody please slap that kid? Would somebody put this kid in line? Because no son, especially in the first century, but shouldn't happen any time, talks to their father with this disrespectful tone. But what does the father do? And he divided his property between them. Now, as soon as the father does this, people are no longer thinking, would somebody put the son in line? They're now thinking, would somebody put that father in line? Because the father has to uphold his honor in this community. You cannot allow your neighbors or your sons or your family to even shame you. This is dripping with shame and honor. And so what does the father do? He divides his property among them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all and took a journey into a far country. When you and I hear something like that, we think, wow, this kid is like quick to sin. Well, that may be true, but there's probably more going on. At this point, the community itself is being shamed. You can't have somebody in your community doing something like this. Not in the first century. This is not an individualistic community. What one does a community stands for all in the community. And it's quite probable at this point that this young man is receiving some serious heat from his peers and from the other families in the community. So not after many days, what does he do? He gathers it all together and takes it into a far country. So here's my question for you. How do you take a third of a massive estate and liquefy it in a few days? You have to sell it for pennies on the dollar. So he shames his son, uh, father, He shames his religion, and now he even shames his estate and his inheritance by just unloading it as fast as he can and getting the money and going off into a far country. Far country for someone like me, that might be China. That's pretty far away. Might be Peru, something like that. Far country in our parable just means Gentile land. He is no longer living among the Jewish people. He is now going out to live among what what would be considered the unbelievers. And of course, by the end of the story, it tells us that he comes to his senses. Verse 17, this is after a famine comes into the land. Famines, by the way, are terrible in the first century. Famine in uh, you know, our century, 
that means you cut back on watering your grass a little bit. That's all. Famine in the first century, this would wipe out entire villages. There are laws on the books that tell you how bad famines were in the first century. Things like this. Like if somebody died in your front yard, you were responsible to remove the body. Just to have a law on the books like that tells us that death and famine was probably pretty common. And it was so bad here for the young prodigal son that he, he finds himself attached to a citizen. This is a specific word. It means a Greek citizen. He's no longer identifying with Jewish society. He's now fully identified with Greek society. And he's even serving Greek society. One of the worst things you could possibly do in the ancient world for a Jewish kid is lose your inheritance to a Gentile like this. And that's what happened. He's feeding the pigs, also an unclean animal. You get the shame. You feel that? He shames himself, he shames his father, he shames his inheritance, he's shaming his religion by feeding pigs and the unclean animals. This boy knows no honor. And at this point in the story, everybody that's listening is thinking to themselves, this would never happen. This is out of the realm of possibility. Because Jesus is painting the picture of the most shameful person he could possibly imagine. It isn't long, though, before he comes to his senses. And he says in verse 17, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, but I perish with hunger? Tells us a lot about God, doesn't it? That even those that are not part of the father's household are taken care of by him. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The economy doesn't just work for Christian people. It works for people who don't believe in God. That is God's benevolence. That is his love. That is his common grace. That to be a child of God is something remarkably special. But just to be a part of the world and the creation means there is a certain providence at work. That God upholds all things by the word of his power. It isn't long before we're going to hit this one kind of hard in a little bit. He goes home, verse 20, the father sees him far off. He sees, has compassion on him and he runs and embraces and kisses him. We're not talking about a kiss on the cheek. We're talking about one of these eastern kisses. All over the head, you know, his arms wrapped around his son. He embraces this prodigal that's coming home. But again, we're told that the story started off with the father had two sons. And now the elder, verse 24, is in the field. He comes to the house. He hears music and dancing. Greek word there is symphonia. So, you know, the idea of, it's the idea of like, like just really having a good time. It's a real party taking place. He calls one of the servants. The word servant here is just a word for a young boy. Uh, the boys wouldn't be in a party like this. They'd be, you know, the kind of kids that would be peeking into the tent, kind of seeing what's going on, because they're not really welcome among the adults. They're not of that age yet. And this is one of the boys that kind of is probably looking in. And so the elder comes up and says, what's going on? And he's filled in. Your brother... Uh, has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. The concept, of course, is shalom. He's received him shalom. By the way, this fatted calf is probably the fatted calf that they would use for a wedding or a celebration, probably waiting for the elder brother to get married. And so the elder brother is absolutely enraged. He is angry, verse 28, and he refuses to go in. And if we think the prodigal shamed the father, look at the shame that the elder is now bringing to the father. He refuses to go in. Now I know, like, we're American people. We have different views than maybe in the first century. Some are better, some are worse. If your kid throws a fit in his room and you call him and he doesn't come, you might give him a timeout or something. I don't know what parents do now with that. 
But in the first century, this is a really big deal because the elder is shaming the father. But what does the father do? He goes out and meets the elder and pleads with him to come in. The same way the father shamed himself by dividing the inheritance for the son is now the same thing he's trying to do for the elder. Never think that God only loves prodigals. Never think that God just loves people like Jonah running from the Lord. God loves the legalist. He wants to see him come in. He wants to see people put down their self-righteousness and pride. He goes out to the elder and he goes out to the prodigal. Of course, the elder brother will have nothing to do with it. He says, I have served you these many years and you never disobeyed you. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And by the way, what this means is not that the elder brother wants to celebrate apart from the father. It's that he thinks celebration is only possible apart from the father. The father is a buzzkill. He's a joy kill. The father gets in the way of fun. He gets in the way of enjoying your life. Same way the younger brother thought that. That's the view of the unbelieving world, that God is just out to get you. He's just in the way of you having a good time. But of course, we know the love of God, and we know that's not true. And of course, the father pleads, this son of yours, my, your brother, was dead. Now he's alive. He's lost, and now he's found. So what we're doing is we're going to identify, we started last week, we're going to identify important Christian themes. That's what I want to do with this parable, because there's so many of them. And the first one we said last week is just the concept of sin. What is sin? Because that's a word Christians have used for centuries. Yes, it's a Bible word, but we often we often think of it in legal terms. You know, like sin means you broke the law or sin means you broke some rules. And that's sort of true, like if you read Romans and Galatians and books like that. But way more common in Scripture than this idea of the legal category, which Westerners kind of attach themselves to, is sin is running from God. It's running from a relationship with God. That's what we see in the parable. The, uh, the prodigal doesn't just break rules. He, he runs into the far country. And the elder brother is not just full of pride. He's running from the father in that sense. It's Jonah. It's the whole book of Jonah where he flees from the presence of the Lord. It's Cain who went out of the presence of the Lord. It's Gomer who runs from her husband Hosea. And we learn in a parable like this that when we sin, it's not just that we're breaking some rules. That's true. It's that we're running from our Father. We're running from our Creator and running from a relationship with God. And of course, the kicker in this story is not that, because everybody knows that in the first century. It's that there is more than one way to run from God. Some of us run like prodigals. Throw our fists in the air and we say, God, I'm going to have my own way. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I really don't care what you think. Others of us are sort of stealth. You know, Lord, I've served you this many years. You never made me marry with my friends. Some run in irreligion. Some run in religion. Some run in immoral. Some run in moralism. Some of us run in irreverence. Some of us run in, frankly, a little bit of reverence. There's two ways to run from God, not just one. And sometimes we're even a hybrid of both. No matter how you slice and dice it, both sons are seeking to enjoy life apart from God. The younger doesn't want anything to do with the father. The elder doesn't want anything to do with the father. I kind of illustrate it this way, and I think I've said this before. Um, there's a, let me give you an illustration. There, 
there's a there's a mechanism that fictional writers will use to show the desires of a character's heart. Sometimes they'll look into a mirror and they'll see themselves not just as they are, but with what they want to be, like you know what they really want. Like Cinderella looks in the mirror and if she's not in her old clothes, she's all dressed up and at the ball. Or maybe uh, Fiebel the mouse looks in you know a puddle, and Fiebel is reunited with with his parents or something like that. So anytime, you know, in fiction, if you want to show the desires of the heart, you simply show the reflection, and then you kind of embed in that what the desire of the heart will be. Probably the best example I know of this is something like Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Remember that mirror of Erised, which is desire backwards? And when Harry looks in the mirror, what does he see? He doesn't just see himself. He's now reunited with his parents who, were, who died years ago. And then he's got a friend, Ron, and as I recall in the story, Ron looks into the mirror, and Ron, who is often overshadowed by these older brothers, what does he see? He didn't just see himself as he is. He sees himself as really successful in a certain sport. We have this mirror we look into, and it shows the desire of the heart. And it's very similar to us. We, we kind of say to ourselves, if I just had this or I just had that, I'd be happy, I'd be fulfilled, I'd be satisfied. When you look in you see. Maybe you see yourself with a certain achievement. Maybe you see yourself with a lot of money. Maybe you see yourself as someone that people laugh at. Wow, you're funny. You make good jokes. You're the smartest person in the room. These are the things that we can see when we look into the mirror. In the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You know what God is saying in the first commandment? He's saying, why, when you look into the mirror, do you see yourself with everything except me? That's the first commandment. That's what the brothers are doing. When they look into the mirror, the desire, whatever that desire of the heart is, the Father is nowhere to be found in that reflection. The Father is suspiciously absent. And so there's not just one way to run from God, there's two ways. We're trying to enjoy life apart from God, apart from our Creator. We think He's a joy kill. Second theme I want us to identify is the theme of repentance. This is a common Christian word. What is repentance? It's a renewed sense of awareness about God and ourselves. That's where it starts anyway. I kind of like the language. I actually like the old King James language. Something like, he came to his senses. I think the modern translations say, having come to himself. But the idea there is actually senses. Do you remember the first time you tasted wasabi? I kind of do. I'm like, this little green stuff, this can't be that strong. You know, and wow, lights you up, you know. <laughs> or maybe you walk into a dark room and a light goes on, and wow, you, just, you can't believe what you're seeing. Or maybe you got a shot, you know, uh, some kind of vaccine or a shot, or they drew blood, and the needle went in, and you just weren't expecting it, and your senses kind of kicked in. That's the concept here. He came to his senses. And sometimes God will use the chastening of the world to bring us to our senses. That's what he does here. A famine comes into the land. Terrible famine. This famine is not the judgment of God in the prodigal's life. Well, God could judge him if he wanted. The famine is the chastening and the discipline. It's that which God uses to bring him back to himself. If you read through the book of Jonah, you may think that the storm and the sea monster are the judgment of God. In a sense, I guess they are. But reread the book carefully and you'll find out sin is Jonah running from God. Grace is God pursuing him. 
That storm, that storm was not God trying to judge Jonah. That storm was God pursuing Jonah, chastening Jonah, trying to get Jonah to come to his senses, which he actually does through the chastening. And so he comes to his senses. There's a new desire. The, the, the prodigal says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? You know what's happening when he says that? He's beginning to trust the father. He doesn't know how the father's going to treat him yet. And he's starting to say to himself, he's actually good. You know, He actually deals justly with people. He's not out to get me. He doesn't realize how much grace he's going to receive when he goes home. But wow, it's really starting to settle in his heart. The prodigal, if I could just put it this way, I don't know exactly what's going on in his heart here, but he's willing to be made willing. That's what he is. He's starting to trust the Father where before he was suspicious of the Father. And you can see here there's such a moldable heart. He does not define the terms of the relationship. I think when many of us come to our senses and we want to go talk to the Lord or Think about that relationship. We, we like bring a prenuptial agreement in hand, you know. God, I'll come back, but I'm not doing this. I'm not forgiving that person. I'll come back, but you don't get access to my money. I'll come back, but you're not going to tell me who I can and cannot marry. You know, we, we come with a prenuptial agreement in our hands. The genuine, authentic turning to God here is special because the prodigal does not come back with a prenup. The prodigal comes back putting himself in the hands of the father because he now is starting to trust the father. His heart is moldable, it's pliable before God, and he puts feet to this decision and he returns to the father. Let's talk about grace. Let's talk about grace. The unmerited favor of God. So you know the story, the son, the father sees him far off, and what does he do? He runs. And he embraces them. And he gives them, as I told you, one of those eastern kisses all over the head. Might have kissed the prodigal 20 times, you know. He's got his arms around him. You may or may not have noticed that the father embraced the son before he allowed the son to clean himself up. And I think that one probably goes under the radar because we're not as in tune with these Old Testament themes as Jesus' audience would be. This kid is unclean in every way, shape, or form. I mean, he, we just, he was just told like he's fighting for husks with the pigs. He is ceremonially unclean. He is morally unclean. The father cannot touch this young man until he goes and gets himself cleansed to some degree and pronounced you know, some kind of ceremony. He has to clean himself up before he can go to the father. What does the father do? The father embraces him despite his uncleanliness. It's a beautiful picture of God meeting us right where we are. What a contrast. What a contrast. See, if you're a religious person, you have to clean yourself up. Then God embraces you. It's moral renovation. You have to clean yourself up. You have to make these changes, and then God might actually embrace you. But in Christianity, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were dead in sins, he meets us right where we are. There's a great story that uh, Matt Chandler tells a pastor that he brought a classmate to a Christian gathering. This is years ago. And he said, uh, the speaker, who he ended up disagreeing with, passed a rose around, you know, just a rose. Passed it all around the audience. Might have hit like 500 hands. I don't know. And by the time it got back up on the stage, the rose was, petals had fallen off, and it was looking really bad. And he holds it up, and he says, who, who wants this rose? Who wants this rose? Nobody wants this rose. 
This rose is used and abused, and it's been through so many hands. Who wants this rose? And Chandler said, I wanted to scream from my seat. Jesus wants that rose. God wants that rose. God, despite the things that the prodigal has done, the Father receives him. And God will do the same for you. He does the same for me. He sets his love and his affection on us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. The Father wants the prodigal. I want to move to this next theme. It's the most complicated one, but I think it's actually the best point that we could pull out of the parable. And it's the word gospel. God sacrifices himself for us. Now, historians and Bible scholars are going to tell us something that everybody in the first century would understand here, but it's not innate because it's not in our society. We are not a shame-honor society. Shame-honor societies have certain things. One of them is called a kazaza ceremony. I want to read about this. Kenneth Bailey writes a lot about this. The kazaza ceremony. A kazaza is simply a word that means to cut off. It's a, it's a, it's a semi-formal ceremony that you would do to somebody to cut them off from the community or initiate them back in after they've shamed themselves. Now you've got to remember that this boy has shamed himself. He shamed his father. He shamed his religion. No self-respecting community or village in the first century is going to stand for this. You cannot allow your village to be shamed this way. You do not want to know. You don't want to be known as the village where something like this happened. In the first century, if you allow shame to come to your home or your village, others will not even come to your aid. It's all about honor and it's all about shame. This village, listen, if the father will not uphold the honor of his own house now, the village will uphold the honor of itself. It's got to save face. It's got to restore its honor. And there's no doubt that as this boy is returning back, as soon as the townspeople see him, they are thinking to themselves, Kazaza, we're going to shame him as he comes back. We're told that it might start by spitting on him or something like that. It might be a couple punches thrown, words. They're going to shame this boy back into the community. And it's going to be a very long, slow walk back to the father's house. The only one in the village that will not come out to this ceremony is the who? The father. He's not going to give the boy the time. The community is going to shame him. He's going to sit at that gate until the father's good and ready. Until the father believes that he has been shamed for what he's done to this household. Going to be obligated to sit at that family's gate for who knows how long. It's a perfect opportunity for the father and the community to restore the honor that it once had. But that's not how the story goes. Verse 20 When he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. You got different words for run, different Greek words. This is a run that means like racing into a stadium. There's Treco and there's this one, racing into a stadium. That's the idea. In other words, he is so impatient, he can't get there fast enough. I'm going to tell you why in a minute. Now, here's the shock. This is what the historians tell us. Especially in the first century, men in the Middle East don't run. That's what the story tells the first century that we wouldn't get today. Men in the Middle East, you say, what if they had to run? They don't run. It's not dignified. Kenneth Bailey, the historian, University of Beirut, says this father probably hasn't run in like 40 years. 
You might walk fast, but you don't run. And there's reasons for that. They have these long garments, and you don't expose the bottom of yourself. In order to run, you've got to take that, you've got to tuck it up, you expose your legs. There are laws on the books, not in the Bible, but on the books that say in Jewish culture that if you're, if, if you're doing a sacrifice and the blood drips down onto the, uh, the, your garment, you are not to pick it up until you're out of the presence of people. You can't just lift it up and throw it over your shoulder. And some traditions, if you're walking between thorns and thistles and you know, it, you, and it lifts your garment up a little bit, you have to turn around and apologize to the people behind you. Even men. The Arabic versions, at least one of them, shows the hesitation of even translating this word run. They use words like hastened and hurried. It's really tough for people to understand that get this culture that the father is running. Men in the Middle East don't run. Now here's the million-dollar question. Why did the father run to meet the prodigal? You say because he loves him. Yeah, but we're not going deep enough. The father is running to get the prodigal before the what? Village gets the prodigal. Now read it that way. He sees him a far way off. The father knows what's coming. He knows the culture. He's starting to see the townspeople go out. What does the father do? He sprints. And embraces the son. The father takes on a humiliating, shameful posture to embrace the son. And by shamefully running to meet his son and walking the son back to the house, the shame is no longer directed at the son. The shame is now directed at the father. And don't mistake it. In a small village like this, boy, word gets around. The father loves his son so much he's willing to take the shame of this child upon him. That's the gospel. God taking our shame. God taking our sin through Christ. I love the hymn, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's the cross and the prodigal. Let's take the word change. Change. The love of God changes lives. Seems fairly evident, doesn't it? But I want us to know this. The father, the, the two brothers, the, the younger and the elder, they are, they are living two different narratives. And I think these narratives are identifiable by us pretty easily. One is what's called an interdependent narrative. The other one is an independent narrative. The older brother is interdependent. He is dependent upon others for his identity. He is going to uphold what the community thinks about him. He wants to know, what does the community require of me? And when he fits that role, that's what makes him feel good. The younger brother is independent. He's like a secular Westerner, you know, where he just says, I'm going to kick back against the community, and I'm going to do my own thing and find my own way. Nobody tells me how to identify. I find that for myself. Interdependent means you derive your, your identity from the community. Independent means you de- you, you, you're against the community in that sense. The elder is living out this interdependent narrative. The younger is living out the Western independent narrative. And by the way, if you know Disney movies, I can tell you almost every Disney movie that I've seen in the last 15 years runs along this independent narrative. Once you see this, it'll ruin every Disney movie. You want me to spoil them all for you right here? What is Babe the Pig about? Babe the Pig is about the community will not tell me my identity. I define my identity myself. What is Zootopia about? The rabbit that wants to be a police officer. Everybody wants me to do this, but I believe deep down inside I can do that. What is Moana about? 
a young lady that needs to break away from her community to discover her true identity. What is Frozen about? Frozen is about the, the princess. And, you know, she's not going to be defined by her community. She's going to what? Let it go. She's going to have her own way. What is the sound of music? It's Maria breaking away from the community and finding her own identity. Don't you see? What's Nemo? Nemo is breaking away from the father. Nemo is the prodigal. Do you see? He's breaking away. It's the Western narrative. The, the last heroic narrative of the West is the individual against the community. It's that you find your identity, not in your family, not in your community. You find it by pushing back against those. I dare you to find another Disney movie that doesn't go along these lines. I thought it's going to ruin all of them for you. And that's because that's what our culture sees as an important thing. Now, of course, if you go back far enough, like, I don't know, Beowulf and those kinds of stories, what's happening in those stories? That's before secularism. So Beowulf is upholding the values of his community. See, the old stories are interdependent. The modern Western narrative is independent. Here's what I want to say. Is one better than the other? I don't know, maybe. But they're both terribly oppressive. You know how oppressive it is for the community to pass a verdict on you and tell you what you have to be? You know what's even probably more oppressive than that? The independent narrative where you have to discover who you really are. And it isn't long before you find out you don't even live up to your own standards, no matter how hard you try. And you're way too, com come on, you're way too complex to try to identify as X, Y, or Z. Come on. These are equally oppressive. See, the gospel offers a third way. This is where the parable helps us. The gospel is not calling us to interdependence. And it's not calling us to independence. It's calling us to the Father. See, by the end of the story, the prodigal is not defined by his independence. He's defined by the love that comes from the Father. In the story, the only verdict that matters is not the verdict of the community. We already know what they think about him. But it's not even the verdict that he's put on himself. It's the verdict of the love of the Father. I think this is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 4. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, community. I don't even judge myself, individual. It's the Lord who judges me. Last one, real quick. New life in Christ, verse 24. New life in Christ. My son was dead, he's alive, he's lost, and he is found. They began to celebrate. The gospel truly changes everything for the prodigal. And as soon as the son feels the acceptance, he realizes he's been invited into the innermost circle. He's been invited into this love of the father. And this love of the father is now going to permanently shape his life and put a stamp on his soul. I wonder about you. I wonder about those watching online. Are we living an independent narrative or an interdependent narrative? Or are we letting the verdict of the Father's love define who we are as his people? That's where we find strength. That's where we find new life. Let's pray together, friends.